The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In an interview in 1961, the poet Robert Lowell had this to say, I seesaw back and forth between something highly metrical and something highly free. There isn't any one way to write, but it seems to me we have gotten into a sort of Alexandrian age. Poets of my generation, and particularly younger ones, have gotten terribly proficient at these forms. They write a very musical, difficult poem with tremendous skill. Perhaps there's never been such skill. Yet the writing seems divorced from culture somehow. It's become too much something specialized that can't handle much experience. It's become a craft, purely a craft, and there must be some breakthrough back into life. And listeners to this podcast will recognize that. I've quoted that many times. Um, It's one of the great statements on poetry that I know because it suggests that the the thing about poetry is not uh, technical proficiency. It isn't um, being good just at the craft. It is being able to handle experience. It is being able to have a breakthrough into life somehow. So that uh, this isn't necessarily a warning against formal poetry, any more than it is a warning against free verse poetry or against political poetry or against poetry that is merely commenting on whatever is going on in society and the rest of it. What it is is a warning against not getting caught inside of your own group, not getting caught inside of your own head, not getting caught inside of what you believe to be the right form or the only form or the one that works for you or whatever it is as somehow being elevated to some kind of top. The point seems to be, and this is for those at least who want poetry to mean something to people outside of uh, universities, the point seems to be that poetry needs to be able to handle experience. Poetry needs to be about life somehow, the life of the poet or the life of the culture or people or past or imaginative future that uh, the poet is writing about. Uh, It is also true that since Lowell's time, um, or maybe even during Lowell's time, I'm not sure, 
there have come about poets who are very happy to be in their ivory tower of one kind or another. You don't need to be in a university campus to be in an ivory tower. And uh, they take it as a great mark of freedom that because poetry isn't uh, looked at the same way, it isn't dependent, depended upon in the same way that it once was, uh, the usual example is Homer, uh, because we are not expected to be Homer anymore, um, there's no reason for poetry to have a breakthrough to life. There isn't much of a reason for poetry to handle experience in a way that will be comprehensible to anyone outside of the poet or five other people. But uh, And they should be allowed to do that as well, uh, right in their little corner, because that is exactly what they want to do. The point of my podcast is uh, to assume that poetry can attain that place again, even if by very small steps. And so the Ten Essential Poems by Robert Lowell that I read tonight are the ones that uh, seem to me that have handled his experience. His experience seems to have been um, his own autobiography, his own sense of being brought up in a Boston Brahmin family, his own experience uh, all throughout his life of mental illness, his own experience of uh, American history, um, ancient history, Roman and Greek history especially, but also medieval history, and uh, American history in the sense of the Civil War and the anxieties after World War II. And also, at least in the beginning of his career, there was uh, religion when he was a devout Catholic. So those are the kinds of poems that I will be reading from tonight. And I thought it's worth just mentioning here a bit of my own autobiography, is that uh, when I was in high school, I was introduced, the, the names that I remembered obviously were Shakespeare, and later on Whitman and T.S. Eliot. But Lowell was the first poet that I found on my own. It should be striking, I guess, that uh, for someone of such towering influence in his lifetime, that someone in high school only... See, Lowell died in 1977. He lived from 1917 to 1977. Um, I was in high school, I was a senior in high school in 1997. So only 20 years later, and I don't remember reading any of his poetry in high school. That should say something. But I do remember exactly where I was working at the college library in the fall of 97 when I came across a new paperback that had come into the collection. It was Robert Pinsky's The Figured Wheel. And one of the blurbs on the back said, uh, no one since Robert Lowell has yada, yada, yada. And I said, who is Robert Lowell? And then when I was reading uh, around the same time, the letters of Flannery O'Connor, Robert Lowell shows up there as well as one of her friends when he was still a devout Catholic. And uh, it was years. I, I, this also coincides with my first experience with Amazon. And I went looking for his collected poems, and it wasn't out yet. And I was on this waiting list on Amazon for, uh, uh, let's say, I guess, 1997 until about 2005, until I finally got a copy uh, when the book came out and his letters, uh, 1,100 pages of poetry. And I finally had it. 
And I remember these days very, very well of sitting down outside of work and uh, trudging through it at home, finally getting through this book, this 1,100-page book of poetry. Uh, by all accounts, some of the best poetry written by an American uh, after Robert Frost, after World War II, and trying to make sense of it, trying to see why it was that these poems were so revered. I don't quite get it, but the ten poems I am going to read here, I can definitely see it there. And for those listeners who are interested, they can go back and find many of Lowell's early poems. Uh, his first book of poetry was published in 1946, called Lord Weary's Castle. But the first poem I'm going to read from tonight comes almost 200 pages into his collected poems. It's from a book called Life Studies from 1959. And let me see here. So it just so happens that when World War II came around, a young Robert Lowell uh, was imprisoned for being a conscientious objector. And this poem is a memory of that imprisonment. This is called Memories of West Street and Lepke. And it says this, Only teaching on Tuesdays, bookworming in pajamas, fresh from the washer each morning, I hog a whole house on Boston's Harley passionate Marlborough Street, where even the man scavenging filth in the back alley trash cans has two children, a beach wagon, a helpmate, and is a, quote, young Republican. I have a nine-month's daughter, young enough to be my granddaughter. Like the sun, she rises in her flame-flamingo infant's wear. These are the tranquilized fifties, and I am forty. Ought I re to regret my seed time? I was a fire-breathing Catholic C.O., and made my manic statement, telling off the state and president, and then sat waiting sentence in the bullpen beside a Negro boy with curlicues of marijuana in his hair. Given a year, I walked on the roof of the West Street Jail, a short enclosure like my school soccer court, and saw the Hudson River once a day through sooty clothesline entanglements and bleaching khaki tenements. Strolling, I yammered metaphysics with Abramowitz, a jaundice yellow, it's really tan, and flyweight pacifist, so vegetarian he wore rope shoes and preferred fallen fruit. He tried to convert Bioff and Brown, the Hollywood pimps, to his diet. Hairy, muscular, suburban, wearing chocolate double-breasted suits, they blew their tops and beat him black and blue. I was so out of things, I'd never heard of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Are you a C.O.? I asked, a fellow jailbird. No, he answered, I'm a J.W. He taught me the hospital tuck, and pointed out the t-shirted back of Murder Incorporated's Tsar Lepke. There, piling towels on a rack, or dawdling off to his little segregated cell full of things forbidden the common man. 
a portable radio, a dresser, two toy American flags tied together with a ribbon of Easter palm. Flabby, bald, lobotomized, he drifted in a sheepish calm, where no agonizing reappraisal jarred his concentration on the electric chair, hanging like an oasis in his air of lost connections. And that reminds me of something uh, around the same time that I was reading these poems, back in 2005 and 2006. I was also reading the uh, journals, the diaries of the Trappist monk Thomas Merton, who fancied himself a poet. But I remember at some point uh, in his monastery in Kentucky, Merton gets a copy of Robert Lowell's first book, and he suddenly realizes, no, there is a poet, um, even though that is the sort of Baroque, crenellated, uh, overly formalized poems. But then there was something else that Thomas Merton said, which is that uh, T.S. Eliot, supposedly, I've never heard this anywhere else but in Thomas Merton. Um, T, the remark was that T.S. Eliot once said that he he resisted, he, he saw ideas for poems as temptations, and he resisted the temptation to write a poem as long as he possibly could. And it strikes me that Robert Lowell uh, did not consider ideas for poetry temptations, and he never held off either. Um, but in any case, these next two poems were now into uh, about page 350 in his collected poems. These, these two will come from his 1964 book, For the Union Dead. So this is a post-Kennedy, post-Cuban Missile Crisis and all of that. Back in 2005, next to this poem called The Public Garden, I have written, uh, Why Can't They All Be Like This? Um, there's a great sense in Lowell that uh, not just his proficiency, not just the ease with which he is able to rattle off poems, but also a sense that his mental illness, to be quite honest, sort of made it necessary for him to keep writing writing was what grounded him. Writing was what, uh, you might say, kept him sane when he was sane. It was one of the things that he could focus on. It reminds me of uh, when I start a month writing a short story or whatever it is, and I realize that I need to take a break once a story or a long poem is done, just for my own health, just for my own mental health even though I realized lately that the one or two or three days that I take that break, um, it's not that I'm happy, it's not that I'm resting, it's just that I'm not focusing on a story. I'm very grouchy because I want to get back to writing, but I know I need that break. Um, there doesn't seem to be a middle way there. Um, the break makes you grouchy, but if I kept right on writing the next poem or the next story, that would make me grouchy, but in a worse way, if that makes sense. So that uh, even in 2005, I knew, getting to page 341 and saying, why can't they all be like this? I got a sense with Lowell that here is someone who 
is writing two different kinds of poems. On the one hand, he's writing poems that he wants to last and that he probably knows very well will last. But on, but on the other hand, he's surrounding them all with poems that maybe he doesn't even care if people read. Uh, they're all filler. Uh, a great many of them seem to be filler. Um, and he's more writing them for himself, uh, just to keep himself going. But this is a wonderful poem called The Public Garden. And it says this, uh, Burnished, burned out, still burning as the year you led me to our camp stamping ground. The city and its cruising cars surround the public garden. All's alive. The children crowding home from school at five, punting a football in the bricky air. The sailors and their pickups under trees with Latin labels. And the jaded flock of swan boats paddles to its dock. The park is drying. Dead leaves thicken to a ball inside the basin of a fountain where the heads of four stone lions stare and suck on empty faucets. Night deepens. From the arched bridge we see the shedding park-bound mallards, how they keep circling and diving in the lantern light, searching for something hidden in the muck. And now the moon, Earth's friend, that cared so much for us and cared so little, comes again always a stranger. As we walk, it lies like chalk over the waters. Everything's ground. Remember summer? Bubbles filled the fountain, and we splashed. We drowned in Eden, while Jehovah's grass-green lyre was rustling all about us in the leaves that gurgled by us, turning upside down. The fountain's failing waters flash around the garden. Nothing catches fire. And that's just beautiful. I love that poem. Um, this next one is the title poem for the Union Dead. And here you really get the sense of what Lowell can do uh, when he is on. I mentioned there's autobiography, there's his family's deep history, there's the history of America. And there's the anxiety of, um, of being alive in the 60s. And it is all right here in this poem about uh, a Civil War monument in Boston. Uh, this is incredible. This is for the Union dead. And by the way, the very end of this episode, I will include uh, a recording of Robert Lowell himself reading this poem in his wonderful voice. For the Union dead. The old South Boston Aquarium stands in a Sahara of snow now. Its broken windows are boarded. The bronze weather vane cot has lost half its scales. The airy tanks are dry. Once my nose crawled like a snail on the glass. My hand tingled to burst the bubbles, drifting from the noses of the cowed compliant fish. My hand draws back. I often sigh still for the dark, downward, and vegetating kingdom of the fish and reptile. One morning last March, I pressed against the new barbed and galvanized fence on the Boston Common, 
behind their cage, yellow dinosaur steam shovels were grunting as they cropped up tons of mush and grass to gouge their underworld garage. Parking spaces luxuriate like civic sand piles in the heart of Boston. A girdle of orange, Puritan pumpkin-colored girders brace the tingling state house, shaking over the excavations as it faces Colonel Shaw and his bell-cheeked Negro infantry on St. Godin's shaking Civil War relief. Propped by a plank, splint, against the garage's earthquake. Two months after marching through Boston, half the regiment was dead. At the dedication, William James could almost hear the bronze Negroes breathe. Their monument sticks like a fishbone in the city's throat. Its kernel is as lean as a compass needle. He has an angry, wren-like vigilance a greyhound's gentle tautness. He seems to wince at pleasure and suffocate for privacy. He is out of bounds now. He rejoices in man's lovely, peculiar power to choose life and die. When he leads his black soldiers to death, he cannot bend his back. On a thousand small-town New England greens, the old white churches hold their air of sparse, sincere rebellion. Frayed flags quilt the graveyards of the Grand Army of the Republic. The stone statues of the abstract Union soldier grow slimmer and younger each year. Wasp-waisted, they doze over muskets and muse through their sideburns. Shaw's father wanted no monument except the ditch, where his son's body was thrown and lost with his, quote, niggers. The ditch is nearer. There are no statues for the last war here. On Boylston Street, a commercial photograph shows Hiroshima boiling over a Mosler safe, the Rock of Ages, that survived the blast. Space is nearer. When I crouched to my television set, the drained faces of Negro schoolchildren rise like balloons. Colonel Shaw is riding on his bubble. He waits for the blessed break. The aquarium is gone. Everywhere, giant finned cars nose forward like fish. A savage servility slides by. On Greece. And of course, to me, those last lines, using the words everywhere, um, brings to mind uh, W.B. Yeats' The Second Coming, where everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned, and where a savage servility slides by on Greece, sounds to me quite like slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. I think that might be my favorite. Uh, of Robert Lowell's poems. He's really able to get it all in there. But of course, for his life, um, that can't be the case. You have to keep going. And where I think he really hits his stride in a single collection or a single way of writing, because there's really no way to do a sequel to For the Union Dead, 
is in a book that is in his collected poems under the title of History. This is a series of almost 400, if you can believe it, 414 line poems. And uh, it can all be too much. It is too much. Um, this is someone with uh, immense, uh, immense abilities as a writer to just shake these things out of his sleeve. I heard that said about Wordsworth, that he was, at some point, uh, while writing The Recluse, uh, he was just able to shake hundreds of lines of blank verse uh, out of his shirt. And and that seems to, be, seems to have been the case with Lowell for the reasons I gave. On the one hand, poems that mean something and that he wants to mean something to others. On the other hand, poems that just need to get written because that is what is going to keep him going. And it's an awful lot of slogging. This begins on page 420. But if you find the gems, the gems are really there. And since he is uh, holding himself to 14 lines, you can see him really trying to get it all in there. And I think he does many times. The very first poem is the one I'll read here. It is called History. History has to live with what was here, clutching and close to fumbling all we had. It is so dull and gruesome how we die. Unlike writing, life never finishes. Abel was finished. Death is not remote. A flash in the pan electrifies the skeptic, his cows crowding like skulls against high-voltage wire his baby crying all night like a new machine. As in our Bibles, white-faced, predatory, the beautiful mist-drunken hunter's moon ascends. A child could give it a face, two holes, two holes, my eyes, my mouth, between them a skull's no nose. Oh, there's a terrifying innocence in my face, drenched with the silver salvage of the morn frost. And again, that puts me in mind of Yeats, who would have been able to do that even better, that visionary sense. Um, but when we go almost 500 pages later, past uh, much of recorded history in 14-line poems, there's some nice ones about Hannibal crossing the Alps and facing the Romans, um, and on and on. We finally get to, to Lowell's lifetime, and this uh, might be a tie with For the Union Dead as my favorite poem of his. Look at what Lowell is able to do with uh, those things that I mentioned, autobiography, um, his own autobiography and that of his family being sort of a, a rich kid in Boston, uh, private school and the rest, and of knowing the cousin of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And then right at the end, um, just bringing bringing in uh, ancient history uh, and that figure from Greek mythology, Ajax, the great suicide in Greek drama. Listen to this incredible poem, putting this into 14 lines. This is called Bobby Delano. The labor to breathe that younger, rawer air. St. Mark's last football game with Groton, lost on the ice crust the sunlight gilding the golden polo coats of boys with country seats on the upper Hudson. 
Why does that stale light stay? First form, hazing. First day being sent on errands by an old boy, Bobby Delano, cousin of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Deported, soused off the presidential yacht, baritoning you're the cream in my coffee. His football, hockey, baseball letter at fifteen. At fifteen, expelled. He dug my ass with a compass, forced me to say, my mother is a whore. My freshman year, he shot himself in Rio, odious, unknowable, inspired as Ajax. Now that is what poetry can do. That is a, that is a novel. That is um, a novel about class, a novel about uh, being away at boarding school. Uh, it sets the scene of, of uh, winter, of a popular song, of uh, hazing, uh, all the rest of it. Um, it is all right there. You know that scenario and you know that kid or someone very like it. And a few pages later, in a poem called Anne Dick Number One, 1936. This is another one where he, you see him, as poets do, leaning on literature to calm himself. In this case, in a scenario where uh, he and his girlfriend have gotten in trouble. And it says this, Father's letter to your father said stiffly and much too tersely that he'd been told you visited my college rooms alone. I can still crackle that slight note in my hand. I see your pink father, you, the outraged daughter. That morning, nursing my dark, quiet fire on the empty steps of the Harvard Fieldhouse in vacation, saying the start of Lysidas to myself, fevering my mind and cooling my hot nerves. We were nomad quicksilver and drove to Boston. I knocked my father down. He sat on the carpet, my mother calling from the top of the carpeted stairs, their glass door locking behind me, no cover. You, idling in the station wagon, no retreat. And if any of you out there do go looking at uh, Robert Lowell's early, earliest poetry, where it is the crenellated Baroque stuff, you can't imagine that he would one day be the person to write poems like this, uh, autobiographical poems that could simply say, I knocked my father down. It would turn into a whole thing. Or that would be the poem. It wouldn't... Uh, just be one of the things that happens in the poem. Um, he wouldn't say, saying the start of Lysidas to myself. It would be like, I tried to recite the beginning of Lysidas to myself, something like that. Uh, he is able to loosen all of this stuff up and make it extremely informal, but in its own way still formal and still extremely, extremely powerful. And he made it basically uh, a story about uh, a 19-year-old and his girlfriend, um, which uh, not many of us can do. So 70 pages later, um, that poem is on 509. This next poem is on a page 571 
and we're still with the 14 lying poems from history, is another one where we can see what he does with history and does it very well. This is called For Robert Kennedy, 1925 to 1968. And here he shows us how it is that a poet can comment almost in real time or very nearly in real time on current events and still make it and still make it something that uh, isn't just a flash of the pan, isn't just something to be chanted, but uh, can this is something that can be chiseled in stone uh, next to the grave of Robert Kennedy, you might say. Listen to this poem. Here in my workroom, in its listlessness of vacancy, like the old townhouse we shut for summer, airtight and sheeted, from the sun and smog, far from the hornet yatter of his gang, is loneliness, a thin smoke thread of vital air. But what will anyone teach you now? Doom was woven in your nerves, your shirt, woven in the great clan. They too were loyal, and you too were loyal to them, to death. For them, like a prince, you daily left your tower to walk through dirt in your best cloth. Untouched, alone in my Plutarchan bubble, I miss you, you out of Plutarch, made by hand, forever approaching your maturity. It's a wonderful poem. That is the way to do it, and to turn it all, turn it on the, on the dime of Plutarch as well, is quite a thing to do. Now, if anyone out there does know about Robert Lowell, if he still is taught in classes or criticized in them, no doubt, more so, uh, it is because of his, let's see, what year is this from? It is because of his 1973 book called the Dolphin. And in this book, he details the uh, disintegration of his marriage to the wonderful writer, wonderful essayist, and I think uh, uh, co-founder of the New York Review of Books, I think, uh, Elizabeth Hardwick. Uh, he details that, the disintegration of their marriage and their divorce, but he does so uh, in part by using uh, some of her letters to him verbatim because they were living apart. And um, I think part of the crime of this, you might say, is that he did it without telling her about it uh, until it was in print and she just suddenly saw these these letters that he had uh, chopped up and probably fiddled with a tiny bit and turned into poetry. If you go looking, uh, there's actually a book called and I'll put a link to it in the post description. Let me find it. So it's a great title. It is called uh, The Dolphin Letters, 1970 to 1979. Elizabeth Hardwick, Robert Lowell, and Their Circle. And you sort of get the sense from all of this. Uh, one of the things I talk about a lot here is how does Homer take out the garbage? How does a poet, um, when he's not writing, he or she is not writing poetry, how do they just get on with regular life? 
And at some point, with a life like Lowell's that was filled with so much uh, upheaval from his mental illness to just his relationships to other people to ending up using his divorce as fodder for poetry and his wife's letters as poems themselves, you come around at some point to asking that impossible question. Um, is poetry worth doing all of this uh, to yourself and to people you love? And um, I don't know. and Or just the idea of uh, that you can title a book Elizabeth Hartwick, Robert Lowell, and Their Circle. Is it worth having a circle? Is it worth uh, winning the Pulitzer Prize, as Lowell did, before he turned 30 for his first book of poetry, and being the equivalent of the Poet Laureate of the United States um, very soon after, I think, and of basically not having anyone around you that can say, no, or who can chop up your 400-page volume of poetry and say, uh, maybe it doesn't need to be quite this long. Um, maybe you don't need to be imitating or translating or doing all of these things constantly. Or if you do, maybe they just don't need to be in print. I get the sense from Lowell, he's not one of my favorite poets, but I think his life story here is almost as important as the poems. And you wonder, I suppose that's it, is it worth it um, to do all of this just to end up finding a way? Let's see, he's born in 1917. Um, he's in his, he's almost 60 years old by this time. Um, is it worth it to spend all of that time to find a better and better way, perhaps, to write poetry, if this is what happens to your life. You think of that line from Yeats uh, about, you can only choose the perfection of the life or the perfection of the art. Well, it seems to me that Lowell, at least, shows that uh, you shouldn't really expect perfection of either. This poem from The Dolphin is just called Marriage? Question mark. And since it is, the poem is in quotation marks, it must be, I believe, from one of those letters that Elizabeth Hartwick sent to him. I'm not sure. But listen to this poem. I think of you every minute of the day. I love you every minute of the day. You gone is hollow, bored, unbearable. I feel under some emotional anesthetic unable to plan or think or write or feel. Mesa'ira, these things will go, I feel, in an odd way against appearances. Things will come out right with us, perhaps. As you say, we got across the Godstyle Marsh, reached Cumberland and its hair's breadth Roman roads, climbed Hadrian's Wall and scared the stinking picked. Marriage? That's another story. We saw the diamond glare of morning on the tar. For a minute, had the road as if we owned it. Now, that's a great poem about a marriage going to hell. Uh, but uh, is it worth it, uh, being able to write a poem like that, um, 
it's just an impossible question, really. Uh, I'm not trying to judge the guy. I'm just honestly trying to wonder, since a great deal of this podcast is about how we live as creative people as much as it is the creativity itself. Um, there's really no avoiding it, I suppose. And this last poem from the dolphin is just called Dolphin. And uh, this is more of the same. This is beautifully done. Again, it has to be put through the screen. Uh, the other poem was put through the screen of Roman history. This is put through the screen of the playwright uh, Racine. And it says this, my dolphin, you only guide me by surprise. Captive is Racine, the man of craft, drawn through his maze of iron composition by the incomparable wandering voice of Phaedra. When I was troubled in mind, you made for my body, caught in its hangman's knot of sinking lines, the glassy bowing and scraping of my will. I have sat and listened to too many words of the collaborating muse, and plotted perhaps too freely with my life, not avoiding injury to others, not avoiding injury to myself, to ask compassion, this book, half fiction, an eel net made by man for the eel fighting. My eyes have seen what my hand did. And after that poem, it is worth uh, reading just a paragraph from Wikipedia about Lowell's struggle with mental illness, because it was definitely serious and real. This is what it says. Uh, Robert Lowell was hospitalized many times throughout his adult life due to bipolar disorder, the mental condition then known as manic depression. On multiple occasions, Lowell was admitted to the McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts. And one of his poems, Waking in the Blue, references his stay in this large psychiatric facility. While bipolar disorder was often a great burden to the writer and his family, it also provided the subject for some of Lowell's most influential poetry, as in his book Life Studies. When he was 50, Lowell began taking lithium to treat the condition. The editor of Lowell's letters says this, Saskia Hamilton says this, Lithium treatment relieved him from suffering the idea that he was morally and emotionally responsible for the fact that he relapsed. However, it did not entirely prevent relapse, and he was troubled and anxious about the impact of his relapses on his family and friends until the end of his life. He really was racked by guilt over these things. And to share one other thing before I read the very last poem tonight, and this comes from a letter that Lowell wrote to his wife, Elizabeth Hartwick, uh, before they divorced, but sort of sealing their divorce. And I remember exactly where I was when I read this. As I said, I, I took some months out in 2005 and 2006 um, living with my wife, and uh, going through these 1,100 pages and then going through, I think, about 800 pages of letters, and at the same time uh, following his life uh, 
through Paul Mariani's wonderful biography of Lowell called The Lost Puritan. And you get to the very end and uh, all of the upheavals and all the upheavals you can blame on mental illness, all the upheavals you can just blame on the creative mind or just someone who is not fun to live with or be friends with. Um, you come around to a letter like this. Uh, I remember reading this and just crying uh, uh, that, that someone could go through. I mean, it, it has to be to his credit that someone could go through what he did and end up with a poem like Dolphin that I just read and end up being able to write a letter like this. This is what it says in part. I don't think I can go back to you. Thought does no good. I cannot weigh the dear troubled past, so many illnesses, which weren't due to you, in which you saved everything, our wondering, changing, growing years with Harriet, their daughter. So many places, such rivers of talk and staring. I can't compare this memory with the future, unseen and beyond recollection with Caroline, that's Caroline Blackwood, the woman he left, Elizabeth Hartwick for. I love her very much, but I can't see that. I am sure that many people have looked back on a less marvelous marriage than ours, on the point of breaking, and felt this pain and indecision, at first insoluble, then, when the decision has been made, incurable. I don't think I can come back to you, but allow me this short space before I arrive in New York to wobble in my mind. I will be turning from the longest, realest, and most loved fragment of my life. And with that, let me read Dolphin one more time, and then go to the last poem I'm going to read called Epilogue from his 1977 book, Day by Day. And then after that, we will hear Lowell himself reading uh, For the Union Dead. So thank you very much for listening. And uh, I'll just read Dolphin one more time as a lead-in to Epilogue. My Dolphin, you only guide me by surprise. Captive as Racine, the man of craft, drawn through his maze of iron composition by the incomparable wandering voice of Phaedra. When I was troubled in mind, you made for my body caught in its hangman's knot of sinking lines, the glassy bowing and scraping of my will. I have sat and listened to too many words of the collaborating muse, and plotted perhaps too freely with my life, not avoiding injury to others, not avoiding injury to myself. To ask compassion, this book half fiction, an eel net made by man for the eel fighting. My eyes have seen what my hand did. And epilogue. Those blessed structures, plot and rhyme, why are they no help to me now? I want to make 
something imagined, not recalled. I hear the noise of my own voice. The painter's vision is not a lens. It trembles to caress the light. But sometimes everything I write with the threadbare art of my eye seems a snapshot, lurid, rapid, garish, grouped, heightened from life, yet paralyzed by fact. All's misalliance. Yet, why not say what happened? Pray for the grace of accuracy Vermeer gave to the sun's illumination, stealing like the tide across a map to his girl, solid with yearning. We are poor passing facts, worn by that to give each figure in the photograph his living name. For the Union Dead, the old South Boston Aquarium stands in a Sahara of snow now. Its broken windows are boarded. The bronze weather vane cod has lost half its scales. The airy tanks are dry. Once my nose crawled like a snail on the glass. My hand tingled to burst the bubbles drifting from the noses of the cowed, compliant fish. My hand draws back. I often sigh still for the dark, downward, and vegetating kingdom of the fish and reptile. One morning last March, I pressed against the new barbed and galvanized fence on the Boston Common. Behind their cage, yellow dinosaur steam shovels were grunting as they cropped up tons of mush and grass to gouge their underworld garage. Parking spaces luxuriate like civic sandpiles in the heart of Boston. A girdle of orange, Puritan, pumpkin-colored girders braces the tingling statehouse shaking over the excavations as it faces Colonel Shaw and his bell-cheeked Negro infantry on St. Gordon's shaking Civil War relief, propped by a plank splint against the garage's earthquake. Two months after marching through Boston, half the regiment was dead. At the dedication, William James could almost hear the bronze Negroes breathe. Their monument sticks like a fishbone in the city's throat. Its kernel is as lean as a compass needle. He has an angry wren-like vigilance, a greyhound's gentle tautness. He seems to wince at pleasure and suffocate for privacy. He is out of bounds now. He rejoices in man's lovely, peculiar power to choose life and die. When he leads his black soldiers to death, he cannot bend his back. On a thousand small-town New England greens, the old white churches hold their air of sparse, sincere rebellion. Frayed flags quilt the graveyards of the Grand Army of the Republic. The stone statues of the abstract Union soldier grow slimmer and younger each year. 
wasp-waisted, they doze over muskets and muse through their sideburns. Shaw's father wanted no monument except the ditch where his son's body was thrown and lost with his niggers. That's what the dispatches said. The ditch is nearer. There are no statues for the last war here. On Boylston Street, a commercial photograph shows Hiroshima boiling over a Mosler safe, the rock of ages that survived the blast. Space is nearer. When I crouch to my television set, the drained faces of Negro school children rise like balloons. Colonel Shaw is riding on his bubble. He waits for the blessed break. The aquarium is gone. Everywhere, giant, thinned cars nose forward like fish. A savage servility slides by on Greece. Thank you. If you enjoy this episode, please click on the link in the post description where you can learn about different ways of supporting this podcast. You can also support this podcast by going to wordandsilence.com where you can buy copies of my two books of poetry, To the House of the Sun and Bone Antler Stone, as well as a collection of short stories, The Lonely Young and The Lonely Old. And as always, thank you for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.